Today is the final week in our sermon series, Wholehearted Faith in a Divided World. Listen for the good news from the Gospel according to Mark chapter 7, beginning at verse 24. From there, Jesus set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice, but a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about him, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. He said to her, let the children be fed first for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then Jesus said to her, For saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. May God bless this reading to our understanding. The nerdy student who hung out with all the theater kids dressed like a punk rocker. His name was Will. He was one of the few out-of-the-closet gay men at his school in the late 1980s. The super jock, nationally known as a competitive wrestler, always wore his baseball cap backwards, and his name was Chris. Chris was loud and boisterous and drank way too much beer and drove his car way too fast. The only thing that Will and Chris had in common was that they were both juniors at Yale University. This summer, I read the story of Will and Chris, which is aptly named, We Should Not Be Friends. Will and Chris appear polar opposites, but a chance meeting their junior year leads to a lifelong friendship characterized by deep respect and mutual love. Now today's scripture lesson could also be titled, We Should Not Be Friends. Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman should not have been friends. Some say they shouldn't even speak to one another. She was a pagan, a Greek. He was Jewish, Hebrew. She was from the north, that region of Tyre, which is present-day Lebanon, and he was from the south, present-day Israel. She is of the lesser gender, he from the ruling gender, so really they shouldn't talk to one another at all. Jesus needed a break. He was exhausted from miracle working and feeding the masses and healing. And so he sought refuge in a friend's home. I picture him putting up his feet. Maybe he just needed a little nap to rest his weary soul. The Syrophoenician breaks in, intrudes where she has not been invited, barging in with an urgent request for Jesus to heal her very sick daughter. The dialogue between Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman is fraught with hostility born of the ethnic, cultural, social, political divisions characterizing the ancient world. 
Jesus knew firsthand the stark divide between the Gentiles and the Jews, the foreigners and the locals, the men and the women, the clean and the unclean, the religious insiders and the religious renegades. And by the time the Gospel of Mark is written, this religious, social, political tension has only heightened and intensified because of the war in 70 AD where the Jewish people revolt against the Roman rulers, predominantly Gentiles, and this revolt is met with severe resistance and violent repression. In the context of divisiveness, we hear this story from today's gospel about a conversation between a Syrophoenician woman begging for Jesus to heal her demon-possessed daughter, and Jesus, who just needs a little time of rest inside a friend's home. But even with all that background, what Jesus says to the woman in today's gospel reading shocks us. We already know that Jesus is a compassionate man who's always breaking the rules in order to heal the outcast. So why? Does Jesus rebuff a woman who falls down at his feet in a worshipful posture, begging for healing? The words that Jesus speaks to her are unbelievable. He says to this mother of a severely sick child, let the children be fed first, for it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Now I'm gonna be honest with you, for decades, I avoided this text like a plague. I wouldn't touch it with a 10-foot pole, not in a Bible study class, not in a sermon. In fact, every time I stumbled across it, I felt like I understood why Thomas Jefferson kept the scissors near his Bible so that he could snip out the parts he found offensive. Jesus hurls an insult at a woman seeking healing for her child. Jesus calls her a dog. Now scholars have wrestled for years to try to figure out what could possibly be going on here. Jesus appears to be saying that the Jews are the children of God and others are not welcome at the table. How can we possibly hear these words that appear to be sexist and racist on the part of Jesus? How can we possibly make sense out of what sounds like religious superiority? Was Jesus just illustrating the cultural tensions? Were Jesus's words taken out of context and he didn't really mean to be so crude and rude? We know that we don't have verbatim reports from eyewitnesses. But most scholars caution us, don't explain away Jesus's insult. Jesus too was human. Surely he also had moments of compassion fatigue. And why would Jesus answer a request about healing with an answer about the table? It's the wrong topic, Jesus. This week, when I read again this uncomfortable story of divisiveness found on the pages of the Bible, I reflected on our own American history. Good Christian people following God have often hurled insults at one another. 
For example, at the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama this week, there was a wall of signs that had been taken down from many places around this country, signs that would have been readily visible in the times of my grandparents and my parents' lives, a time when racial segregation was not only legal, but sanctioned by many religious groups. One of the signs that struck me was a sign that had been placed over the entry to a restaurant. No Negroes, no dogs. Another sign, probably placed at a hotel, said, no Mexicans, no blacks, no dogs. These signs were horrific and appalling, and some of the people in our group this week remembered in their own lifetimes seeing these signs because they were all across Texas and Mississippi and Alabama and Arkansas and Georgia and Oklahoma and, yes, Missouri. Separate water fountains. In the museum, there was even a copy of the Green Guide published for families of African descent on road trips or on train trips so that they could look them up when they were almost to Columbia, Missouri to say, hmm, I wonder where we can take our kids to the restroom. Or as they were almost to Kansas City, hmm, I wonder if there's a hotel where we can spend the night. We have made a lot of changes in this country. But you and I still look around and see divisiveness where we wish we could see peace. Back in July, when I sat in the quiet solitude of a monastery and sketched out what I might want to preach about this fall, I was thinking ahead to November being that time when there's usually some kind of election. And then after that, we gather with our relatives for Thanksgiving. And as you're getting out of the car and you're carrying your apple pie, someone in your family says to you, now don't bring up politics if Uncle Bob is there. Divisiveness and polarization affects our closest family relationships. I could see all that coming back in July, but what I did not begin to imagine is that this fall I would stand here in the pulpit at a moment when a war had broken out in the Middle East and the bombs were falling. I did not foresee back in July that the United States have a House of Representatives would oust the Speaker of the House and get, then go through weeks of wrangling over multiple other candidates to be nominated before finally one was elected. A few years ago, we hosted an interfaith panel here at the church. It was so inspiring. Representatives from a wide variety of world religions sat on the panel. We had a a taped uh, video component of it and an in-person component of it. And when we gathered together, I was so moved by the willingness of each participant, not only to speak on the panel, but also afterwards inviting me, come, bring your members to our house of worship. We will come and bring our members to your house of worship. And just like that, COVID hit, and we were unable to continue those partnerships. And then this summer, I received a message from one of the panelists. He explained that he had taken a new job in a new city and that his current congregation did not believe in interfaith dialogue of the type we had shared here. He wrote with a simple request, can you please remove that panel discussion from your video archives? 
is the divisiveness in our world, the divisiveness in our nation, increasing, widening. Let's look back at that scripture for a moment to see, is there any hope in the midst of that awkward tension in the text? Some folks would say, well, of course there's hope in the Syrophoenician woman because of the way she responds to Jesus rebuffing her. She does not back down. She persists. She isn't rude to Jesus, but she keeps advocating for her daughter and for herself. She uses Jesus' own language and imagery when she says, sir, or Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then Jesus seems to turn. He could have walked away, but he turns back to her and he replies, for saying that, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So she went home and found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. One of the few places in all of scripture where a healing of Jesus takes place, but he was never in the room with the girl. The demon is gone. Health is restored, and if that is not miracle enough for us, Jesus himself seems to have had a change of heart. He goes from shushing the woman to praising the woman. He goes from ignoring her pain to embracing her pain and healing it. Jesus' own conversion moment is how many scholars describe this text. Jesus having a change of heart. Did you hear that story last Monday about the 85-year-old Israeli woman who had been taken captive by Hamas a few weeks back? Her name is Yaakoved Lifshitz. And she was released on Monday and she described how she had been captured and taken into these underground tunnels that seemed to stretch for miles like spider webs. She said what she went through in her captivity often felt like hell. She was bruised and hit with sticks. And as she was released, she knew that her husband was still hostage, her 83-year-old husband. But the cameras captured, maybe you saw it, the moment when the Hamas soldier came forward, covered from head to toe in a black uniform, his whole face covered with just some yellow marks where he could see through, and he hands her to the Red Cross. He's holding his gun, he's got her, he passes her, and she starts to reach towards the Red Cross person, and then she turns back, and she looks into the face of her captor, and she says, Shalom. Peace. Could it be that the hope we have is that even where divisiveness threatens to destroy us, there is a power in the human spirit to rise up and act out God's incredibly gracious love? Could it be that in the midst of our divisiveness, there is still a tenacity in the human spirit to seek peace, to behave ethically, to preserve the dignity that God gave to every single human person. Well, that could be one way to find hope in this text, to look at that woman as an example of all of those who have clung 
to, tenac to tenacious hope for peace and dignity in the face of a divided world. But there's another possibility for finding hope in the story, and that is to look at the character of Jesus himself, because Jesus is the one in the text who has a change of heart. Jesus goes from telling the woman she has no place at the table to making a place at the table for the woman and welcoming her. And in this story, as in every story in the Bible, it is Jesus who represents God. And God is revising the plan to find a way for all people to feast on the heavenly banquet that God sets. The demon of divisiveness is exercised in this text. The human family can be embraced together at God's table. But do we believe it? Do we believe that that kind of change in the character of Jesus is still possible? Dear, we hope that the Savior of the world models for us that we too can transform. This week, I was reminded of a story that I've shared with some of you. It goes back to the days when I was in graduate school in Connecticut. I'd been living in the dorm for two years, and my third year, I decided that I'd like to move off campus into an apartment. You know, it'd be a little bit more affordable if I could cook my own meals. And a friend of mine named Claudia was in the process of moving to Connecticut to take a job at the university, and she was looking for a roommate. So we decided that we would share an apartment. Claudia was about 10 years older than me and had been a mentor to me for many years. Over the summer before that final year, I was doing an internship at my home church and living with my mom and dad in Texas. And while I was at work one day, the lease came in the mail from Claudia for me to sign and send back. And when I got home from work, my parents had opened the lease and it was sitting on the kitchen counter and they said to me, what's that? And I said, oh, that's the lease. I'm going to be living with Claudia this year. And they said to me, you are not going to live with the black person. And I was so startled. I did not want to upset the apple cart in my home, but I had every intention of moving off campus and living with Claudia. I was stuck. So I made an appointment. I met with my pastor at my home church. I explained that I, I wanted to respect my mom and dad, and, and I was putting myself through school with student loans and work study and different jobs, but that I was still dependent on my parents for things like car insurance and plane tickets home for Christmas and those other things that students have a hard time affording. And my parents threatened me, and they said, if you want to defy us, you can. You'll have to pay your own car insurance. There'll be no plane tickets home. For Christmas and if you come home for Christmas there'll be no gifts under the tree how could I respect my mom and dad and also do what I thought was right in September I drove to Connecticut and I moved into the extra room in Claudia's apartment and then in May my mom and dad came for graduation when the caps and gowns had all been returned my dad and I packed up the car to drive back to Texas. 
We were saying goodbye to Claudia, who was staying there in the apartment, waiting for her next roommates to move in that summer. I was already in the car. I was starting the ignition, getting ready to back out when my dad said, wait. And he got out of the car, and he went back upstairs and into the apartment, and he found Claudia. And he grabbed her hands, and he looked her in the eye, and he said, I just want to tell you, thanks for taking care of my daughter. Change. Transformation. God's project of healing the world. Do we still believe it? <laughs>